0: So I said to Tanya, hey, I really want these three things. Like I want like a really nice business card holder and a compendium and by the by the pouch thing seems to be all the rage. She was like, oh, okay, design them and then let's talk to people over there and see what we can do. And Tanya was like, well, what are you gonna do with this stuff? And I was like, oh, I don't know, like put it on Instagram and they sold out in a week.
1: Hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brain where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert, the overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin, Anna and Mava. Now get comfy, fellow lady brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. Four years ago, Elise Tran was working as a corporate lawyer in Sydney. She didn't love her job and spent much of her time using the office printer to make mood boards that inspired her of flowers, fashion, beauty and design. Her coworkers always commented on her creative style, so she decided to start a blog called The Daily Edited, posting once a day an edit of all the things that she loved. It wasn't until Elise went into Louis Vuitton to buy a monogram bag and couldn't afford the price tag that the idea of providing stylish monogrammed leather accessories at an affordable price was born. Fast forward to today and The Daily Edited has transitioned from what started out as a blog to a globally recognized fashion brand with annual revenue of over $30 million. We met Elise at The Daily Edited's office, which, by the way, is as gorgeous and flower adorned as you might expect. We began our chat by talking to Elise about growing up in Adelaide with two immigrant parents.
0: See, I didn't realize that I was entrepreneurial and it's only on reflection, but my parents have always been entrepreneurial. They came to Australia when they were about 18 years old and they worked for someone else, obviously. So they were at school studying English and then my mom got pregnant and they were like, Oh crap, we're going to have a kid. We need to go and um, get jobs. So, uh, because they were unskilled, they could only get work as laborers. So, they worked on a strawberry farm for another man. And my dad and my mom were both so hardworking, he then leased them a plot of land where they had their own strawberry operation. I was like a baby at this point. And then by the time I was four or five years old, they were able to buy their own farm. And that was during the Asian financial crisis, which made everything really cheap. So (laughs) my parents have always had these amazing, like, you know, it's that kind of luck meets the sort of timing of it all. So they purchased a farm that I then, you know, we moved to, which was about, you know, an hour out of the Adelaide CBD. So not that far. And that's where I grew up. And from the moment I could basically walk. I was working with them because I, it wasn't like we—I had, had the nanny or anything. Like I was literally like in a crate in the shed, the packing shed, and so like I was just naturally doing stuff. So my first job was putting labels onto the punnets of strawberries. They don't just happen. Someone, <laughs> Someone has a kid to do that it. Sticks on those labels. So that was my first job. Then I like upgraded to before like the plastic hard top punnets that you probably remember the cling wrap. Over punnets? Yeah. I was yeah. doing that. Then I set up a strawberry stall over like the summer holidays and stuff and priced the strawberries accordingly and like made like a sign and put it out on the main road so that people would drive in. And you you would have seen that before, you know, when you drive through like a country yeah. town and they're like carrots yeah. or whatever the local produce is. So we were selling and I was selling to people in that way. So when people would come up to the shed, I would like run out and then like do the transaction with them. So, yes, I've always had that. But then I then started high school and things and then the thing became very academically inclined and that sort of thing stopped and I stopped thinking about it until now. But I do think it was kind of ingrained from me into me at a very early age. So something that was
2: cultivated. When
0: yeah, were... but like not intentionally. It wasn't like my parents like, oh, yeah. we'll get her to do this because one day she's going to sell handbags. It was like just a, <laughs> you know, a function of oh, yeah. the lifestyle yeah. that we were leading.
2: So you went to school and became very academic and went and studied law. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that journey to becoming a corporate lawyer. Right.
0: So I was at a public school in the country up until year seven. I didn't really know or want for much being in the country. (laughs) Then my dad was like, oh, God, like we really should probably look into other schools for high school. So I ended up going to this Known to be the most sort of like expensive private girls' school in Adelaide called Wilderness School. I got there, had no idea what anything was. I didn't know what esprit was, which was like, you know, all right. (laughs) I didn't know any of this stuff. Didn't know what designer clothes were. It was like a rude awakening, like, and all all of these girls and stuff. Like, and I caught the bus to school, which was highly unusual. And then, like, because everyone got dropped off and things, had this crazy uniform, you know at the time, very foreign to me, but now very normal. And because I found it very difficult to make friends and it's cool now because I made a lot of like nerdy friends as well. So like the girls that I became friends with in year eight are now still my friends. Um, and they're all like doctors and surgeons and our lawyers and stuff mm. as well. So,
2: um,
0: so it being hard to make friends and then making friends with girls who are also in similar positions to me, we were just From the get-go, all we had was schoolwork. And so it kind of just, again, again, not natural, not something. A lot of people think my parents kind of, like, pushed me to be academic, but it wasn't that. It was just, like, social stuff. Yeah, (laughs) Um. So then, you know, I just... Wanted to be like those other nerdy girls that made friends with me and wanted to get straight A's, wanted to like win all the academic accolades and stuff. And then, you know, what happens when you go to a private school is, and especially in Adelaide, which is a pretty small town, you know, you get the grades and they're like, okay, well, you're a humanities girl, so you should do law. Or if you're a sciencey girl, then you should do medicine. So it was never, like, again, something that was fully planned, but it just seemed at the time to be a sensible decision, go to University of Adelaide, do a law degree, get a normal steady job as a lawyer. And that didn't really upset me, you know. I was like, that's pretty normal. That's what people are doing. So kind of just went with that. And, um, you know, and I liked it. I guess I enjoyed the study of the law and... The process, the the yeah, like the analysis, and then the problem solving aspects of it. So yeah, and so what was it like when you started working in law? So I actually worked as an associate to a court of appeal judge in Melbourne. So I actually lived in Melbourne for a year, um, and it was an amazing job because you do research to give to a judge, like a very senior judge in the Australian kind of legal hierarchy. Whatever he writes is. Actual law, right? So mm. it was pretty cool. So I did that for a year, and then a lot of people do that. Um, and I made some really good friends there. I had a really lovely like time, and then I went and worked at one of Australia's largest law firms called King and Wood Mallisons. And I went into their mergers and acquisitions team, and just like all I did was work. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't very good at it. Um, I again made um, really good friends and things like that. But I actually found the work really difficult. And on reflection, I found it difficult because I don't think I ever had a had someone actually teach me right. what things were. And so I'm very conscious about that now with my staff because I'm like, well, there should be nothing that they don't know what to, you know, how to do. And so I'm always going like, just ask me if these instructions do not make sense. And I think that was the most stressful part of being a lawyer, actually. It wasn't the hours and stuff because that's fine but it was the stress of not knowing what the answers were or mm. when someone said something to you going back to your desk and kind of freaking out and sitting in like, your cubicle for 5 minutes going mm. oh my god what and it was yeah. that was the thing that kind of like made that job
2: difficult for me and so at what point did you step back and think i want to do something else i'm not challenged in the way that i want to be challenged or i want yes. a creative outlet like yeah. at what
0: point did that happen okay so i started my legal career at the height of the gfc Okay, so two thousand and eight, <laughs> two thousand and nine, there wasn't the deal flow. So you're, I'm in the mergers and acquisitions team, and how many mergers and acquisitions were <laughs> yeah. going on <laughs> in for that sort of five that years period. after? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the deal flow wasn't there, the workflow wasn't there as it was prior in previous years. So I would be extremely busy and then have nothing to do, well, like virtually nothing to do. I don't want people to think I was sitting around at Malice's. (laughs) Um, Yeah. yeah. But then I would go on the internet and stuff or, you know, the function of being a transactional lawyer is you'd send off a document and you need to wait for the comments to come back and then you can't really leave until all of the comments have been sort of digested by everyone and then you have to change it again. So in that downtime, I was on the internet a lot. (laughs) So And that was when, you know, fashion blogging and stuff was born, maybe even a bit before, but that's when I started engaging with it. And I was creating like mood boards and stuff of pretty pictures and things that I liked. And I was decorating my little partition walls <laughs> with printed off pictures that were really colorful and pretty. And people really liked like my curation, like, oh, this is cute. So then I decided to put it on an online, like a create my own kind of like Tumblr website thing. And I met another lawyer at the time who was my co-founder, Tanya Lu, a couple of years older than me, who... You know, we bonded over the fact that we wore really cool clothes to work and stuff. And that made us feel better. (laughs) But we launched together like a a website. So we had it properly built and everything. And it was called The Daily Edited because it was a daily edit of the things that we liked. So like in Mm. food, fashion, you know, and lifestyle. So, you know, we were just posting and blogging about various things. Even that process of getting that website and stuff up was really fun and like, Gave us something to talk about outside of work that wasn't law because no one wants to hear about what transactions you're working on (laughs) on the weekends. Okay, So we did that. And then Tanya was like, do you want to launch a fashion brand? And I was like, that's nuts. But we did anyway. So we launched a clothing brand under the label edited and it was actually like vaguely successful. We got pieces and stuff into, you know, all the Australian mags and some bloggers and stuff wearing it. But, and we ran that for like two years, but it was just not like it didn't explode in the same way that the day, mm. like the current form of the daily edited is. And it was just actually really cool. Cause we then had all these clothes to wear all the time. How did you do that? So our parents actually helped us at the start and we just sort of opened a bank account and the two of us put some money in there yeah, and how do you think like Shopeo and stuff buy yeah. all of their stock and all of those brands? It's all all, all available in China. So you go, is, yeah. you go in and you can buy anything and have it like modified. Mm-hmm. Um, so did and you, you can, go to China? yeah. Well, again, due to internet, you could do a lot online, but also Tanya is Chinese and so Chanel lives over there, but we had a lot of connections with suppliers and right. stuff like that. So we were able to go and choose designs and modify them mm. and then curate collections mm. so it wasn't like fully manufacturing say like Q or yeah you know, someone like Zimmerman or like yeah. actual fashion brands this was sort of like a hybrid and that's and they've been extremely successful so Tiger Mist, yeah. Hello Molly, mm. showpo all of mm. those um, businesses are quite amazing and that's they just Their were model. able to actually take yeah. that model yeah. and run with it. But mine, mine didn't work. I think mine was way too conservative
2: because <laughs> it was geared towards um, what you would wear to work. Right. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. from that, yeah. when did you decide to do accessories?
0: So we wound down the clothing brand,
2: like some just got rid
0: of all the inventory in about early 2014. Um, and then we, I was running the Daily Edited as just a blog. And again, at the time, getting so much free stuff, working as a lawyer, like getting invited to all these events, like it was actually quite fun. And I continued to grow like our Instagram following just purely on the back of like regramming, reposting pictures and stuff like that. And then earlier that year, I had also decided to move to a smaller law firm because I actually was having a, a really difficult time at Mallison's. And so then I moved to this small law firm where all the work was like so easy. Like compared, like so, I'm really grateful for the experience that I had at this giant law firm because the work was very difficult. Because you're on the cutting edge of transactions and the law, really. There, um, and I go to this boutique firm that's super friendly, like three partners, four lawyers, like cute law firm in the city. And yeah, the work was so easy. I just like smashed through it so quickly. I do like all my work within like three hours of the day, and then again had a lot of spare time and things and then I got promoted because again I was just like whatever I can like do this I was like wow I really enjoy being a lawyer now because it's so easy yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. and so then I got promoted and I was like oh now I'm on a six-figure salary you know and at the time I was like 27 and I'm like in my mind I should be like in Louboutins and like really nice handbag and all of this stuff but I live in Sydney and my rent on my one-bedroom apartment is like $550 a week. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, hang on, I actually can't afford this stuff that in my mind, I thought I would have at this point in time. And so I went into Louis Vuitton and I was like, I was going to like treat myself and buy something for work, a nice accessory. And I quickly rolled out of there going, I actually can't afford this. And this is kind of devastating. So I said to Tanya, Hey, I really want these three things. Like I want like a really nice business card holder, and a compendium and by the by the pouch thing seems to be all the rage because again Comme de garçon pouches or yeah that designer pouch was very big at that time and so she was like oh, okay design them and then let's talk to people over there and see what we can do and so we did that really simple like sketches and we sent them to a out one of our first suppliers and they were like oh yeah minimum order is going to be 50 units per item and we're like oh should we do it so we get put in some money, and I was. It wasn't very much money. It was about seven thousand dollars to buy this inventory. And Tanya was like, "Well, what are you going to do with this stuff?" And I was like, oh, "I don't know. Like, put it on Instagram, and then like, use it as props and stuff like that. And then if um, you know, Christmas is around the corner because it was August, I, we can just give them all to our friends for Christmas presents." <laughs> so I put them on to Instagram, like started featuring them in some posts and things, and people were like, "Where do we get that from?" Okay, and I was like, "Oh, cool, interesting." Um, And then I just took photos of them on a white piece of cardboard in my one-bedroom apartment and uploaded them to our WooCommerce plug-in thing to our WordPress website and they sold out in a week. And at this point were they monogrammed? Yes, we were monogrammed. Okay, so the monogramming story. The reason why I went to Louis Vuitton was I wanted something monogrammed. And then I started just Googling around and bought a simple machine from the US which cost like $500 at the time. It's not the machines that we use now but it got us started and I just watched YouTube videos on how to do it. It's just simple. Back then it was only two initials. Now it's much harder. People want all of these other things. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was just like two initials on these flat items, like easy. So I, I basically, we started getting orders and it was like, you know, three or four orders a day, very manageable with a full-time job. So I would, the funny thing was when this inventory arrived, I had it sent to my work the law firm that I was working at, because my one bedroom apartment was too small to keep this inventory. I kept it in the archive room and would take home three or four or seven or 10 pieces every night, monogram them, wrap them up and then put them into express post bags. Cause you know, we hadn't integrated with Australia post and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> um, And then took them to work the next day and then walked them down to the post office to lodge them for delivery. So the service was very good. Yeah. I was doing it. <laughs> I was it's just all the same day. <laughs> like so uh, this actually yeah. like built like a reputation with the rep because people were like, "What? You get this in 2 days?" It's pretty good and it's like $100 and no one had seen anything like that before. And even now we're the, probably the fastest in the market globally. We would probably at this point in time we monogram the most stuff in the world and we know that because the people who sell us our machines now, are the man, he's actually the grandson of the people who the guy who invented the machine. And this machine is supplied to like Coach, Louis, all of the brands. He's like, you go through these machines like there's no tomorrow. And I've never seen anything like it. And the volume that we're doing is like crazy, right? So and we have to keep up to this thing that I that I created at the start. Next day delivery. But by accident. (laughs) (laughs) And now you have to be true to that. (laughs) Seriously. And I used to, you know, so the edited for you cards, we had one and it was edited for, and I would do hand calligraphy and I'd write the person's name because, again, there were like under 10 orders. So I'd do them and leave all of these cards out to dry. We actually continued that until 2015. And at the time I only had two employees. And one day I hadn't finished all of the calligraphy and I had to go to work as a lawyer, and they were like, do we dispatch the orders without the calligraphy card? Like this was an actual question. I was like this kind of probably has to stop and that's when our new sort of packaging came in and we're about to revamp it again.
1: But that's where that came about,
0: so the genesis of the gift cards.
1: So you're relying on website traffic Mm -hmm. to your blog and also social media that you've built Mm -hmm. over time Mm -hmm. to sell out in those first few weeks, months where's the tipping point? Where do you go? I can't keep doing this on the side of your full time job. What decision did you have to make there? And who did you hire? Right. So, so we actually
0: ran the business out on the side until the business was turning around three to $400,000 in sales a month. That is insane. Just the two of you, just the two of you. No, we had two girls helping us but it was a literally a team of four. I didn't sleep for a period of like eight months. My friends who saw that say that I deserve everything that I've achieved now because it was unbelievable. When I think about it now, I go downstairs and it takes one of my girls like eight hours to wrap 50 orders. I'm like, No. <laughs> You know what I mean? I'm like, that's not how it works. Because my original staff, who I still have, one's on mat leave now. She's just had a second baby, but I still have that original girl, Sarah Carey Foster. She was in my dining room when we were just like crunching through this. And that's how much we sold. And that's when our accountant said to us, there's no point in you working as lawyers because everything's just getting taxed. And you can quit your jobs now. So we actually only quit our jobs 30 June 2015. We're not even three years into having. Left our careers as lawyers.
1: What was driving you during those eight months? I don't know. Like, I mean, it was you're just getting like a, emotional about it. Like, because I just what makes what? I don't what do know. you feel? How do you feel about that? I
0: mean, I think I'm at this point now where people new stuff, mm. do not understand what I've been through to yeah. get here. Yeah. And there was a sentiment that I wasn't doing anything in the business as well, and I was like dying over that, like. It really upset me. And this is the first year I've also asked for feedback on my performance and
2: I, I found that really difficult as well. Feedback from your team? Yeah.
0: say so like 360 feedback? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: and so then I was like I just felt like, oh, my God, like they have it so easy because the people who started this business with me work so hard for me. We've put in so much into the business and into the staff and into how we manage the team that it's like oh my god so that I've just been through that this week which is why it is emotional and I'm like oh my god so I don't know what I was going for I just had to do it because the orders kept on coming in and we had to get them out so there was like no (laughs) no choice but I think towards the end of that period I was so excited about the prospect of being able to leave my career as a lawyer Mm -hmm. and we had banked up like about a million dollars like in cash like you know, I was like, like kind of pretty comfortable with, you know, because there was no, there were no overheads. This was all still being done from my dining room, right?
1: In yeah. Wallara,
0: my terrace house. There were no overheads. Two girls that were we were paying. Hello, we were rolling oh, in rolling it. it. Yeah. What are you <laughs> now it's not like that. We actually make less money than we did back then.
1: So got seriously, proportionately, dollars. like for, yeah, right. But like what? Yeah. So you you ha- you can see a million dollars in your bank account. Yeah. Like, how do you celebrate like did you celebrate no, it wasn't did that, you, because,
0: because then we knew we had to invest to so take you it to did, the next but did it. you do anything did you
1: like savor or celebrate that moment no well
0: again I don't remember but people remember <laughs> not because I was like you know no, it was
1: on. a blur <laughs> <laughs>
0: because it wasn't it wasn't like that it was like oh my god it was a relief that we were like now we can quit our jobs and actually work through this but again a guy came up to me he's a friend of a friend, but he, I think I went out for drinks that night, obviously when I quit my job, yeah. <laughs> had a one night off, but seriously, the next day was just going to have to be order dispatch. Like, dude, there was no, you know, and he says he remembers that it was just so exciting and refreshing to be because I was just so happy and he's just so happy as to where it got to. He was like, she's just quit her job as a lawyer. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, quite a big deal. So He's the one person that has said that to me again, but I saw him like at the races last year and that's when he told me, which was really good. And I was like, I barely remembered that. So yeah, yeah,
2: Yeah, really nice. So when you quit your job, what was the first thing that you did to like, did you get an office space? Did you hire someone else? Like what was your first step?
0: So it was like, wow, now I can dispatch orders all day. So it wasn't anything like really glamorous. <laughs> but then because the business was obviously growing, we then went and got office space. It was around the corner from my house. So I live in like the equivalent of like South Yara, right? So it was around the corner. It was used to be a fashion boutique with like a really cool little shed out the back, which I was like, i got it made now. I'm renting this, <laughs> you know, like I've got a nice office space, some shed space for my stock. This is awesome. I can get like at least seven to 10 employees in here. We were in there for two months. Oh,
2: my god! Because the business
0: at that that first, the Christmas of 2015 was the first year. Again, we only had about 15 people by the time because we just had to get random casuals in this December. But that was when the website punched over a million dollars in sales and there were 15 people working for me at the time, less than a couple of – uni students who still work for me these are the girls who I'm like I thought you would leave I thought you, I thought you were here for a still summer here. they're still here I've still got her you know Sophie Starek. and I just recently got a couple of them jobs at bigger places but I, I was like well, we, all we did was just work and then so we were at that office for two months two or three months and then we then moved in here where we are now and I remember when we moved into this office I was like I'm never going to fill this up we're going to be here for the next 10 years. And I think when this lease is up, we're going to have to move because we
2: just- You're at capacity already.
0: So first steps were that. And then obviously, again, like the volume of our sales was so high, there was no time for planning. We actually got a comment from an accountant the other day going, how is it possible that a business of this size did not have a plan? I wrote back, mate, like we were just keeping our heads above water. We hired a CFO literally September last year. When you are just doing stuff and trying to do stuff for your customers, you're not going, what's the next strategic
2: move? Mm.
0: Only at this point in time have I started going, how do I actually move the needle on the revenue? But we've gotten to $30 million in revenue in three years. So when people ask me these questions, I'm like, I don't know. I was just serving customers. We only opened stores. Like our first concession was 18 months ago at David Jones. So we don't know anything about me. Okay. When we first opened that store, I was the manager because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how long it was going to be there for. So people ask me these things about business at large and strategic questions about business and trends and things. And I'm like, I don't know. What I've been focusing on is like how good it is for the customer and why the hell would a customer shop with me over any other bag brand? And it's not about like a specific competitors that people like to talk to me about, but it's about everything. It's about Coach. It's about Mimco. It's about Oraton. It's about all the brands that sell bags and why someone would want to shop with me. And I like things to be really pretty and Instagrammable. So people are Mm. like, what's the deal with the stores? And I just wanted them to be really nice literally and wanted to like, give people experience, the experiences that I've had. So I've had been lucky enough to experience really lovely things with my parents and my life outside of TDE that I want to give to my customers. And people ask me about my digital marketing strategy. And I'm like, again, there is, no one there is none. I was like, oh, we're kind of on a budget now <laughs> with like, you know, the amount we would spend on Facebook and Google ads and stuff, but there. Very little strategy there. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. weird. So now now it's time. Like now I've got to like yeah. actually like think about stuff and go like what's working, what isn't. But, yeah. you know, we just went through a flurry of fixing our websites, you know, converting to a new platform, putting in inventory management, opening all these stores, opening in America. Now that's all done, it's like now I can think about Step stuff. Step back and Yeah, yeah but I just forward. want to get through the yeah. stuff.
2: Yeah. But do you think that you'll slow down?
0: I've already started slowing down. This year has been the first year that I haven't done customer service on the weekends. I used to do that. Major step. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. So both days, nine till six, Sundays, nine till nine, Elise Tran would answer your queries. So we've only really stopped that happening in the last sort of under six month period. So I've definitely slowed down in terms of operationally working on the business Yeah, and now it'll be more strategic stuff, but that stuff is harder. It's much easier to just do customer service for two days, isn't it?
1: In March 2017, Elise and her business partner Tanya sold 30% of the daily editor to Oriton for $4.5 million. It was a great opportunity to partner with one of Australia's oldest and most respected bag manufacturers. However, just eight months after the sale, Oriton went into voluntary administration, providing Elise with the opportunity to buy back her stake at a $2.3 million profit.
0: So we all know that Oriton is still in administration. And as a result of that, um, it gave us an opportunity to review whether we wanted to continue our relationship with them. And we decided to buy back the shares that we had sold to Oriton Because of the uncertainty with that business, Will Vickers owns the business now um, and that's very public and he's a very great and interesting man. Like he's done so well and like Oraton is one of many of his assets and not knowing what he wanted to do with it in the future, we felt like we shouldn't roll the dice and kind of take, you know, our shares back so that we we're then in the masters of our own destiny again. You know, running a business, there's so many uncertainties and to have another layer of uncertainty with what is going to happen to one of your minority shareholders that could affect who's on your board and stuff is not something that we wanted to be living with when if we didn't have to. So, you know, our business is in a really strong position, which is why we were able to fund the buyback and you know, what? like a lot of people have asked me this in the last few weeks. I've been very lucky in a sense that I've now lived with an investor and understood that process and what it's like to have someone external, so to speak, on your board and stuff and, you know, what that does to how you run a business and things. I mean, Oraton were fantastic partners and they're still, you know, I have massive respect for the people who work there and what they're doing and things with that brand. But obviously, when you have another person, they have a say. Um, so we've been cool because we've gotten to live through that, and then have that experience, but then have the old version back as well. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty good. Um, and so yeah, we're really lucky. Oh, a lot of legal fees and stuff. So just, <laughs> <laughs> um, just you know, within the year. But um, we're very excited to see kind of what's next and. It's not like, you know, the week that happened, a lot of people started contacting us again about what we're doing and stuff. And I'm just pretty tired and I'm very like focused on the business again. Like having all of this stuff doesn't really help you make better products and therefore a better experience for your customers, which is Mm. really what this business is about. Mm. So I
1: really just want to focus on that. Do you think you'll take investment from somebody else?
0: Of course, I'm open to it because, you know, every opportunity is a different one and we'll if something is right, then we will definitely do it. Really, we want to achieve a full sale of this business. Now, I think we've learnt what it's like to have a minority investor. You may as well just make them a majority investor because everyone says it's a minority stake only. But you can't just be like, you know, if someone who is a, and this never happened, for example, but, you know, like if There's three people and one person's like, don't do that. It's really hard not to listen to them or give them a say, even if they don't actually get to enforce that. Mm. It just makes you feel uncomfortable. So I don't want to do that again. I basically would rather sell someone the whole thing and I'm happy to work for them knowing that they just have the say. So it's like, fine, you're the boss now, (laughs) you know, which is cool. We're
1: going to end with a few final questions. Mm -hmm. What makes you happy?
0: spending time with like my family um my sister and my boyfriend they're like my favorite people
2: uh next one who inspires you joe hawgan my
0: mm-hmm. latest afr article was very inspiring as well on
2: friday day day. friday yep.
0: yeah i just think i think everything she's executing is making money joe's not doing anything that's just, you know, because of branding. <laughs>
1: branding. Um, branding and
0: positioning. Yeah, no, I don't <laughs> think she's doing that. I think everything she's doing is like really good. Um, so to me, she's the high watermark of Australian retail. Yeah. Everything that I do, I just basically kind of need to just catch up. I don't know how. There's all these cool things like all the time. So, yeah.
1: What's next for you and what's next for the business?
0: So like I was saying, I'm really excited about just working on the business. It's not like I wasn't working on it, but I'm very excited about some new you know, product extensions we have, new collections. I mean, I live very much in the now, so I can't really think beyond six months. Oh my God. And then I'm like, oh my God, in six months, it's like Christmas. Mm -hmm. So just like getting through this year and we're going to iterate our site again in a big way. So we've been working very much on like interface and how We can help customers find things easily. Yeah, it's just continual improvements and development in the TDE space, so very exciting.
1: And ladies, sometimes being dumped can be a very good thing.
0: And then I got a a phone call from the law firm that I was meant to go to in Melbourne and they were like, do you wanna go to Perth? And I was like, why? But I was like, no, like I definitely, you know, I should do it because I don't have anything going on in Melbourne because this guy had dumped me.
2: <laughs>
0: and then I went to Perth and that's when I met Tanya. Wow.
1: And that's,
0: I wouldn't have the daily edited if I hadn't, well, you know, the daily edited in the form that it is now if I hadn't met her because she was the one who was like, let's start a fashion label. And I'm like, that's insane.
1: But, you know, we did it anyway so yeah wow Mm. so thank god you were dumped (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening please be sure to subscribe to our podcast follow us on instagram lady.brains and head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening